Good morning. I'd like to alter the format just a little bit this morning, make it more like yesterday afternoon, even though we have only two and a half hours, not three. And also, I think it might be, since we're over two, the two-hour limit, I think it could be helpful to take a 10-minute break somewhere about two-thirds of the way through so we don't have people just having to go in and out and maybe breaking the continuity of what we have here. So we'll start with two sessions, two back-to-back 24-minute sessions. Um, and again, we have now plenty of floor space behind, so if anybody brought a yoga mat and you'd like to be in either session in the supine position, you're certainly very welcome to do so. Um, this is a short retreat, of course, but something you might want to explore at your leisure after the retreat is doing combos, you know, like a deli. Uh, and a combo would be, number one, combination of postures. So you might want to start out in the supine position and really be cultivating the root system of relaxation, pushing that envelope, considering that really is not just a preamble to meditation, that is very much part of the whole meditative process to deepen the relaxation as you go. So the supine position may be for the first session. Second session, come to sitting. Overall, the, sit, the supine is really good for relaxation and stability, and the sitting can be very good for stability and vividness, those kind of general rule of thumb. Uh, but doing the combination of first really going to the relaxation and then smoothly rolling out of the Shavasana, coming to the sitting position, so as much as possible you retain a sense of looseness, relaxation, comfort in the body, and then come to whatever posture is, is comfortable. So if sitting cross-legged is not comfortable, I would suggest don't do it. Or go to yoga and gradually make it comfortable. Um, but sit in whatever is comfortable. So here, here we have chairs that look pretty decent. At home, though, it could be an easy chair. It could be, we have a lot of good techno techno technological chairs these days, so a lot of variety. But a combination, first of all, of posture. But another thing you might experiment with would be a combination of method. And so, for example, just going back to the infirmary is just generally a good, a good idea. If in doubt, go to the infirmary. And that is, as you rec recall from yesterday, supine, shavasana, full body awareness, mindfulness of breathing, central emphasis on relaxation. And then when you really feel that mellowness and a quietness, so you've not just gotten dopey or spaced out, then rolling up into the, into the sitting posture and then doing either the abdominal attention or attention here for mindfulness of breathing or go right to the settling the mind in its natural state. So kind of pushing the extremes on both ends, extremes not as a bad thing, but pushing the, the, um, the ground of relaxation and then coming up to the sitting position and really kind of pushing the envelope a bit in terms of the increasing clarity and the stillness of your awareness in the midst of the activities of the mind. Okay? So you might experiment with combinations. You might start with the supine, end with sitting, or you might do the, the, do the opposite and end on a very mellow note and then slide out of that and get on with the rest of the day. So what I'd like to do for this morning, since we had a rather brief introduction in just one session of the settling the mind, I'd like to return to that and we'll have two guided sessions. I'll give a bit more guidance in the first session, more of silence in the second one. Okay? So please choose your posture. Whatever it, whatever it is, it's just fine. Uh, frankly, sitting or supine would be, be, be the best, either one of those two.
we begin the formal practice for the day, I would encourage you to start as we did yesterday morning by bringing to mind your most meaningful reasons, your aspirations, your ideals that are relevant to today's practice, your heart's desire, your vision of your own flourishing and genuine happiness, arouse the most meaningful motivation you can by your own lights for today's practice, and let that motivation actually motivate you, be the driving force, to participate in the practices, the discussions for the rest of the day. Settle your body in its natural state imbued with the three qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. And breathing out, see if you can release the energy behind this inner voice that obsessively has one thing to say after another, most of it pretty, pretty much gibberish. Every outbreath, release these involuntary thoughts, memories, images. And rest in a clear and present mode of awareness a quiet knowing, attending to the in and out flow of the breath, releasing with every out-breath, allowing each in-breath to flow in effortlessly.
Then for a little while, take as your object of meditation, object of mindfulness, the space of the body. And whatever tactile events arise within that space, particularly to the sensations related to the in and out breath. And as a preliminary exercise to help calm the discursive mind, the obsessive compulsive mind, you may count 21 breaths, one count at the end of each inhalation. Full body awareness.
let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you, without taking anything as an object, just rest your awareness, sustain the flow of mindfulness, of presence. Take note of the types of appearances that arise to your awareness. In this elliptical field, visual impressions, shapes, and colors arise. In the domain of sound and hearing, of course, sounds arise. Within the field of the body, tactile sensations. These immediately appear to awareness. They're not inferred, they're not imagined. What else immediately appears to your awareness apart from the visual, the auditory, and the tactile? Set aside for the moment any possible fragrances or tastes lingering in the mouth. Apart from the five physical senses, what immediately, directly appears to your awareness? our mindfulness now to the non-sensory domain of immediate experience. Having no clear contours, no center or periphery, but nevertheless a clear domain of experience wherein discursive thoughts, the internal dialogue or commentary, where these thoughts arise, where mental <coughs> images arise, memories and fantasies, hopes and fears, emotions of all kinds. Let your object of mindfulness now be in this domain, this field, or this space of the mind. And whatever mental events arise within that domain, experiment with breathing, whether through the nostrils or the mouth. It is optimal for the body to feel very relaxed, soft, and utter unimpededness in the flow of the respiration. And in this practice, the ideal is to let your body remain as still as a mountain, and your awareness as still as space amidst the comings and goings of thoughts and other mental events.
Ideal here is to sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. When distraction occurs, you've lost your mind. It's been carried away, caught up. When grasping occurs, there's a whole gradient here. Subtle preferences, liking and disliking, hoping and fearing. Superimposing the sense of I or mine, all of these are expressions of grasping. Relax deeply. Let your awareness be like space, as devoid of grasping and clinging as space itself, simply illuminating all that arises within this domain. In all likelihood, you will fall into distraction. Let there be no repercussions, chastisement and so forth, when this occurs. No contraction. Just the opposite. Loosen up. Release your grip on the thought that abducted you. And return your awareness to the immediacy of the present moment and whatever is arising right now. Do not trace the thought back to its origin. Just bring it back to the present moment and attend to whatever arises, long or short, coarse or subtle, whatever it may be, just let it be and observe the nature of whatever mental event is arising in the present moment. As you become spaced out, refresh and focus. And let's continue practicing in silence.
Let's take just a few minutes to stretch in place, and we'll have our second session. Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm.
and throughout the course of the session, intermittently check up on the body and on the breathing to see that both remain in a state of balance. In the case of breathing, neither constrained nor forced. Then in any one of the three modes of mindfulness of breathing, of your own choice, let's count 21 breaths to calm the mind, to make it serviceable for the main practice of this session.
they open their eyes. And in this mode of bare attention, non-reactive awareness, simple presence, bring the full force of your mindfulness to the visual field. It does have shape. It's elliptical if you have two eyes that work. And as you bring your mindfulness to this field and the sensory events that arise within this field, in the scene, let there be just the scene, without imputing, without superimposing, without liking or disliking. In the scene, let there be just the scene. Close the eyes and redirect the full force of your mindfulness to the auditory field. Focus single-pointedly on this domain of experience of sound and in the herd. Let there be just the herd without labeling, without designating, without superimposing anything at all. <coughs> Attend to what is just being presented to your auditory awareness. In the herd, let there be just the herd.
once again redirect the full force of your mindfulness to the space of the body and whatever tactile events arise therein, and in the felt, the tactilely felt. Let there be just the felt. Finally, let's redirect the attention, this time with the eyes open, the gaze vacant, and turn the attention, the full force of your mindfulness, to the space of the mind, and in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived, without projecting I or mine or good or bad or any other projection of any kind, just be present with whatever is arising in the space of the mind from moment to moment. Observe its nature with discerning, intelligent, clear and stable mindfulness. But relinquishing all control over the contents of your mind. Control only the balance of your awareness that you bring to it trimming the sails of your attention, loosening up when there's excitation, arousing your attention, when there's a slippage into laxity and dullness. And let's practice now in silence.
ます
And one very fine psychologist, Michael Posner, has done studies with the groups of teams of, of, of scientists, psychologists in China, finding, I think it was half an hour sessions they did, and finding just doing half an hour sessions had a clear impact on attention. Half hours, not much compared to 16 or 17 hours of waking time. So there's that whole route there of simply integrating this, hopefully into a broader and richer multidimensional spiritual practice, in which case, in which this can play a very helpful role. I don't think this is a balanced diet, just doing this and nothing else. But as part of a broader matrix of practices, I think this really can be quite marvelous. In fact, I don't really think I know it can be, because from my own experience, I know something, much, a little bit. But now, if we consider this like, you know, some people take aspirin just a little bit, even though they don't have a headache for the heart, right? Small doses, and maybe avoids heart attack. Very nice. So we're taking in small doses. But what about, sometimes in the pharmaceutical industry, they say, well, the proper doses of this, but what would happen if we gave 100 times the dosage? Let's do it on mice, not on our kids, you know? But what would it be like to give a massive doses, a massive dosage, and then not only for one day, you know, spiking, give a massive doses for a year? Well, what about this medicine here, settling the mind in its natural state? What if you gave a massive dosage for a year? Not a half an hour, not 20 minutes, not even an hour. Let's say eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, every day. And moreover, not just 10 hours a day and then goofing off for another eight hours a day, but in fact for us 18, it's 18 hours a day. Let's say you need six hours of sleep. 18 hours a day, your whole lifestyle is oriented around supporting the eight or 10 hours a day you put into this. And you do it for a year, maybe even two years. What would happen? What would happen? Gosh, go figure. Would anybody be so wild and crazy and lunatic and revolutionary to try that, such an experiment, on their own mind? And happily, we don't have to just speculate. This practice has been very, very widely disseminated, commonly taught, and practiced by some pretty hardcore yogis in Tibet for a thousand years now. Every generation. I don't think they've skipped one. It's a pretty safe bet. Uh, to the present day, of people who do, have done just what I indicated. 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. One yogi that I lived with for a year and whom I invited this country to lead a one-year retreat, uh, when he passed away just a few years ago, his he was hardcore. He was really hardcore. Genlam Rimba. Talk about hardcore. This man's meditative practice started at 5 o'clock. I hear that and say, oh, shuck, mine often starts at 3.30. But then there's the catch. His ended at 1 o'clock. So he was doing 20-hour practice regularly. Regularly. That's pretty intense commitment. That's pretty strong commitment. So what, what happens? And, I'm, uh, and what I'll tell you now, this is not religion, and I'm not even asking you to believe anything I say. But shucks, when people run incredibly interesting experiments and do it for a thousand years, and the report, I'm interested. And since I've lived with Tibetans on and off for 40 years now, going on, um, I take them pretty seriously. And then I've spent, you know, I don't know, over 10,000 hours, I guess, doing the practice myself, this and closer related ones. So here's the report. Here's the report. What happens if you do this for a year or two, and you do it well, and you, you orient, you adjust, you massage your whole lifestyle to be supportive to this? So if you're doing this, you probably want to, to retreat into a very quiet environment. I took a hike up here on the side of the hill, the sunny side, and I thought, oh, this would be a nice place for a hut. I, I could handle this. You know, and just live there in solitude for 5 or 10, 15, 20 years. I could handle that. 
So people have done that. Tibet's kind of, it was almost like designed to, you should have neon lights on the borders, meditate here, you know. Because <laughs> it has so many fantastic places to meditate. And, uh, and then a whole culture that supports it, as our culture happily supports science. Bear, you know, core research, and we're supporting our graduate students, and we have laboratories, and we have fantastic universities. We provide fellowships and loans. We're bending over backwards to make sure that we have generations and generations of well-trained young scientists. And isn't it a wonderful thing? Because if it, if it weren't for that, science would have just been sledged along like a turtle for the last hundred years. Here we have Tibet as an example, not the only one. Thailand and so forth, some approximation there. Whole culture that supports this. And then these yogis go off for two years, well, minimum, maybe 20 years, 40 years, and doing this. So what do they report? What happens if you do this practice? And you're living in utter solitude, tremendously simplifying your whole lifestyle. So even in between sessions, there's very little erosion from the transformation, the opening up that takes place while you're in formal practice. So everything is oriented around that, your food, your diet, everything towards this. And then spot on, single pointed, this is it for a year, let's say, two years. Well, what happens is the mind settles in its natural state, hence the name for the method. This is a practice of settling, so it's an ongoing process. But it doesn't just, it's not just the same, 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 same. People have tried this. It is an experiment that's been done thousands of times, continues to be done to this day. And it's not just watching the same old stuff. It doesn't, it's not, it's not the case that it just remains the same indefinitely. What does happen is this. And that is when we first attend to the space of the mind, at the first blush, you may find that the contents of the mind, the thoughts and images and so forth, you may find, unlike when you're doing mindfulness of breathing, when you're just being barraged by one little irritating gnat and, you know, fly and buzzing and buzzing of just thoughts coming up and, you know, and blow them all out and they keep on coming back in. Then you turn your full attention to the space of the mind. And some people have found, some of you probably have found, those doggone things disappear. They scuttle away, like turning on the light in the kitchen and seeing all the cockroaches going to the, run the refrigerator. Hey, cockroaches, it was your time. I came here to watch you. Come out, come out. They're waiting for the lights to go off. And that is, they're waiting for you. These thoughts seem to be, I'm obviously giving a caricature of them, but it's like they're waiting for you to turn your attention elsewhere. And then they come scurrying out again, crawling all over your mind. Well, don't worry, that will pass. This time of the cockroaches being so shy. I lived in Berkeley years ago when we had cockroaches, and then after a while they got wise that it was a Buddhist living there. <laughs> like the deer and the turkeys here. They've caught on. People here don't kill turkeys. Now half a mile away, duck. Here, <laughs> they won't even move out of the way and your car's coming. You know? We own the place, you're a visitor, you know? So there we are. Well, you continue in this practice, and after a while the cockroaches of your thoughts will come out and play. And, you, and the first metaphor that comes out, when you really get in stride, and this practice is working, is a cascading waterfall. It's just a gusher. It's like they're tumbling over each other, trying to you know, capture your attention. Thoughts, images, desires. And so really lots of quantity, image of a cascading waterfall. Do the practice. Just do the practice. And you know what it is. The, the, the motto is, sustain your mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. That's it. Don't be carried away. Don't get caught. Just that simple. Let's imagine you can do it. You just get more skillful at it. What does happen? 
Bear in mind there's no intervention here and there's, here's a crucial point, there is no preference for the thoughts to subside. If you do, you're not doing the practice. Because that's grasping. That is an intervention. Even like a, a, a stern father that sees his kids playing and just goes, <laughs> then the kids will stop, you know, because they know, oh, dad's just expressed the preference. You know, well, this, da this dad, this dad is, here's the metaphor. It's like an old man watching other people's children play. That's from classical India. An old man watching other children's play. I've done that on occasion. So I don't have much time anymore. But when I lived oh, near a, base, a little league field, sometimes on Sunday, this pretty old guy would watch, come over to the little league field and watch other people's children play little league baseball. Now, can you imagine how little I care which team wins? But I enjoy watching the kids having fun. The parents are there. I'm sitting way out back. So no matter what happens, if one kid gets hit with a ball or whatever, do you think I'm going to do anything? The parents wouldn't like it. The kids wouldn't say, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, my proper role is just shut up and watch. But there is no intervention at all. The parents are there. Anything that goes wrong, the parents will take care of it. So in other words, when the old man watch, watches the kids play baseball, you just watch. Enjoy it. Without distraction, without grasping. I don't care which team wins, just watching them play. So that's the quality. It's attentive, it's interested, might be even enjoying, but it's not even dreaming about intervening. Right? So do that practice, not even preferring that the game slows down or the players disappear from the field. Not even preferring that. Really as impartial as space, but without the grasping, which means we're not fueling the perpetuation of any particular thought, memory, desire, and so forth. No fuel is being given. Right? Continue doing it. Let the tens of hours, the, the scores of hours, the hundreds of hours flow. OK, now we go into time-lapse photography. What happens? The content gradually subsides. Now, it will not do so in a linear fashion, every day and every way, getting smoother and gentler. Uh-uh-uh. You're going to be hitting spikes of arousing, dredging, bringing up memories, old memories, desires, emotions, fears, angers, passions, lusts. It'll come up in spikes. It'll come up in waves. They will not come homogeneously. But be prepared for a wild ride, because what's in there will come out. Now, you should have an enormous confidence, 100% confidence, that whatever's coming up didn't come from outside. It didn't come from the method coming in and bringing contamination into your mind. It didn't come from the teacher, from the Buddha, from Tibet. These are not Tibetan things coming up in the mind. They are yours. <laughs> in other words, you're not getting it. Don't blame me. <laughs> well, all this stuff comes up, and it comes up very heterogeneously. A really swell day, and the next day feels like hell. And then the next day, something else. The next day, and you just keep on cruising. You have one response. The practice does not get more complicated. It's homogenous all the way through. And gradually, with all the spikes coming up and the emotions coming up and so forth, overall, as you, as you take the panoramic view with the wide-angle lens or the time-lapse photography, you see a general subsiding. The volume is decreasing. The turbulence is gradually subsiding. Subsiding. It goes from a cascading waterfall to a dashing mountain brook, to a river flowing through a valley, to the river flowing into a sea, an ocean unmoved by waves, to the final metaphor, a great mountain. Total stillness. Now, when you get there, this will, in most cases, this will take months. What you're finding when you're getting rather 
far along that path, down into the, the river flowing in the valley area, getting pretty close to the ocean and moved by air, waves area. The relaxation of the mind is getting really core. It's so loose. You'll be able to sit for three hours or longer, loose, relaxed, really soft. But stable, clear, continuous, real flow, this Csikszentmihalyi notion of flow, boy, in spades, just uninterrupted flow. But as you're attending and attending and attending, you'll be, you'll be discerning, noting subtler and subtler and briefer and briefer mental events. And all of this gradually subsiding. The clarity just becoming luminous, incandescent. But combined with and nurturing the stability, the stability nurturing the relaxation, the sense of ease and looseness, which in turn nurtures the stability, which nurtures the, the, the vividness. And when you come to these lad the final stages of this practice, because this has an endpoint, this has an endpoint, that the mind has settled in its natural state. It, then it's done. Then, and the, then the curtains are drawn. You're finished. And it's not nirvana. But in this process of this gradually subsiding of the contents of the mind and this strengthening of the coherence, the stability of attention, over the course of time, and it comes in waves and then it subsides, comes in waves, your awareness of the environment fades out, or I should really say fades in. So even with your eyes open, the colors fade out into black and white, monochrome, and then even with the eyes open, the monochrome fades out. Your ears are wide open. But at times you just don't hear anything. It fades in, fades out. Here all the sensations coming from the body. But as the, the whole flow of your awareness is coming purely into the mental domain, the very sense of being corporeal fades in, fades out. And you continue. Continuing, it all fades out. All the senses fade out. There's nothing wrong with them, but there's just not enough awareness to go around. And the awareness being so channeled, the samadhi, this is samadhi. This is the unification of awareness. The, uni the, the, the mind, the awareness has now been so channeled that it's all going into the mental and there just isn't any left over for the visual, the auditory, the tactile, let alone the olfactory and gustatory. <coughs> and so you find yourself in a purely mental space. And in that space, the events arising are just diminishing, diminishing, getting subtler and subtler until open, empty, luminous space. And the mind is just silent. And your mind is settled in its natural state. Now, there's a name for this, and I found as a scholar who does a fair amount of comparative work, both in, within Buddhism as well as outside, I found the following point really interesting. Because of the theme that runs through science, and scientists know it very, very well, and that if you have independent labs studying the same thing and without sharing notes, and moreover, especially if they're using different methods, but they are attending to the same thing, and if they wind up drawing similar or identical conclusions, that gives you a lot of confidence that what the conclusions they're drawing are not simply artifacts of their own system of measurement. They're not contrived. That They're actually telling something about, some, about reality that is not just relative to their own lab. 
Now, this was a major problem. In fact, it was perhaps the most devastating problem of 30 years of early psychology, the introspectionist movement. With Titchener at Cornell, with Wilhelm Wundt in Leibniz and elsewhere, you had these really smart people in which, and, and then guiding people in the practice of introspection with extremely crude training, I'd have to say, at least from the Buddhist perspective. But nevertheless, people of integrity, of intelligence, and wanting to use the direct observation of the mind to draw sound scientific conclusions about the mind. And what they found, which was largely the reason why introspection was dissed, at least in terms of the public display, was that the people doing the introspection kept on coming up with the results that their, the mentors, the scientists, thought they would. So it looked like contaminated goods. It looked like these were artifacts, that there was too much of leading the witness, to use that parallel from the legal system, too much of leading the witness. So they kept on coming up with you know, observations, and they were observations, but they seemed to be all, all tainted, directed towards confirming the presuppositions and so forth of the particular lab, and they weren't getting a whole lot of congruity. Now, in fact, the demise of the introspectionist movement was far more complex than that, and there were many better reasons, that is, ideological and dogmatic reasons why it disappeared. But that was actually a legitimate, a true flaw. In contrast, in many branches of science, astronomy is a very cool one, is you do find this using different observatories and, and so forth, maybe different types of, maybe one is a radio telescope and one is an optical telescope and so forth, honing in on the same region of space and then drawing similar conclusions. Then you think, okay, that's not just an aberration of the lens. That's not an artifact of our technology. There's something out there. And we're getting it from Chile and we're getting it from Hawaii and we're getting it from Southern California and we got a discovery on our hands. Well, consider the following discovery. And that is, in Theravada Buddhism, for hundreds and hundreds of years, their contact with Tibet was essentially nil for all practical purposes. They didn't want to go up there. Anybody who likes the climate of Thailand does not want to spend any time at all at 14,000 feet. <laughs> and one of my teachers from the highlands of eastern Tibet, he said when some of the pilgrims came from his region to Lhasa, way down at 12,000 feet, they would die of the heat. <coughs> Literally. So anybody who thinks hot plaza at 12,000 feet is a really hot place, they're not exactly going to be eager to head down to Burma. <laughs> so just for geographical reasons, let alone that the Tibetans thought the Theravadans were a bunch of Hinayanists, you know, and the Tibetan and the Theravadans thought the Tibetans were a bunch of demon worshippers. All you have to do is look at their icon iconography, and they must be worshipping Dishin. You know? <laughs> so that's not Buddhism. They are just Looney Tunes up there. They, there must be too thin air. They've just gone bonkers. <laughs> so why would you want to go up there and learn anything about Buddhism? And why would you want to go down there when they're just a bunch of selfish brats? You know, me, 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 my enlightenment, you know. So we have these caricatures, these cartoons, and then it's just, you have geographical reason and ideological reason, no interest at all. So that's, I think, even though I'm speaking a little bit in jest, I think this is really a pretty fair account. And I think it's a factual account, a statement. For hundreds of years, they just had no contact. Now, what's interesting? Independent labs. And they're not, all, they're not operating under the same, even the same body of text. The Pali Canon, the Pali Disc, not many of them are translated in Tibetan. Tibetans are primarily looking at their Mahayana Sutras and Vajrayana and all of that. None of that's in Pali. So you can't even say, oh, they're all working out of the same template. Well, they're not. Right? Now, are there common ground? Of course there are. But their actual practices, satipatthana, mindfulness of breathing, really big in Theravada, not at all in Tibet. They weren't doing satipatthana. And they weren't doing much of mindfulness of breathing either. So the methods are different. The textual templates 
significantly different. And they didn't talk. So now where's this going? What we find in the Theravada tradition, based on the Buddha's teachings recorded in the Pali Canon, is that when you practice shamatha, all roads of shamatha lead to one place, even though the methods can be very, very different. But when you achieve shamatha, and by that I mean something very specific, access to the first jhana. Now there's first jhana, second, third, and fourth, and then there's the four absorptions, the samapatis, and the formless realm. That's true for all of Buddhism. And all Buddhists, all these big Buddhist schools, the Theravada, the Indian, the Tibetan, they all agree there is a state of mental balance, of, of samadhi, called access to the first jhana. And when you achieve that, and I did my doctoral dissertation on this, so I'm familiar with the material. It doesn't mean my conclusions are right, but I have studied it. Um, when they describe what it is like when your mind reaches this, ascends to this access to the first jhana, or threshold samadhi, to the first jhana, your mind disappears. Your mind disappears. Now, what do we mean by that? In the Pali, they refer to javana. It's really easy to remember, because I always think of coffee. Javana, javana. Because coffee makes you fizz, right? I don't drink it, but that's what I understand. And so javana refers to the activities of the mind, the kinetic energy. I like the analogy, the kinetic energy of the mind. I'm looking over at David, and I see the, I see the, the maroon shawl and so forth. And so this is a visual perception. This is activity taking place. And I like maroon. I was a monk for a long time. Ah, oh, that's a familiar color. So it's pleasing to me. And so I'm liking a, a pleasant sensation as arising. And I'm recognizing that it's a shawl. It's not a gopher, in case you had any qualms on that point. No, not a gopher. It's a, and so my memory, my language skills, recognition, feeling, mental, sensory, all of these are javana. Now, in contrast to javana, what happens when all the javana, the kinetic energy of the mind, I think it's really quite a close analogy, what happens when all of that goes into pure potential in good old classical Newtonian physics? Potential energy, kinetic energy. What happens when all the kinetic energy just goes potential? And your senses implode. They just all withdraw into the mental. And then the mental implodes, and all the activities, this and that, and dreaming, and emotions, and hoping and fearing, all of that goes, hmm. You remember how? 2001? Hmm. 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 Is shutting down. Well, that happens every time we fall asleep. Into deep, stage four, isn't it? Stage four dreamless sleep. Howl shuts down. And your senses all implode. Happily, not irre irreversibly, but they are really out for the count. And all of the javana subside. They all go dormant. All the kinetic energy of our sensory experience, mental activity, all goes into deep, dreamless sleep with no imagery. I mean, and there are various types of stage four sleep. Sleepwalking occurs in dreamless sleep and so forth. But let's speak of just a simple, image-free, activity-free state of calm. That state of consciousness, because in Buddhism, you have not lost consciousness. And there's just recent evidence that in the vegetative state, there is consciousness. I don't know if you saw that. Quite interesting. Uh, people actually recognizing sound and actually being able to do things, like imagine playing tennis while in the vegetative state. It was good science. The reporting was atrocious, <laughs> but their science was really good. So in any case, in this state of stage four dreamless sleep, the Buddhist perspective, now obviously anything I can say is wrong, can be incorrect, but I will stand and say what I'm saying about Buddhism is correct. It's a true statement about Buddhism. That I would ask you to believe. And I'm not some schmuck that's not talking about Buddhism I haven't even studied and don't know. 
Okay? So that I would ask for. If you don't want to give, I don't care. So there we go. So what's happened is when you're in this stage four dreamless sleep, you're not devoid of consciousness. You're not, you have more consciousness than this. And I'm going to assume until, and there's any evidence to the contrary, that this duck just has zero consciousness. None. If it were temperature, zero degrees Kelvin consciousness with this stick. I'm going to assume that until there's any evidence to the contrary. You have more in stage four dreamless sleep. You have more consciousness than a stick. Something above zero degrees Kelvin on the consciousness scale, right? But most of us, when we're in this stage four dreamless sleep, we're not aware that we're sleeping. So really, there's not much to report when we come out. We don't know how long we were asleep and so forth. And we can't report on what it was like. So the consciousness is beneath the threshold of being able to report, to truly ascertain what's taking place, unless, and this is a really interesting exception, and it certainly occurs, you actually become lucid in stage four dreamless sleep, in which case the mind is as calm, as empty, as luminous as anybody else, anybody else's stage four dreamless sleep. But you are luminously aware, clearly, vividly aware, that you are deep asleep. Well, that's certainly true. It's, it, it can take place. It's been studied scientifically by people like Stephen LeBerge and others, and it's been known about for at least a thousand years in Buddhism. So you can actually be deep asleep in stage four sleep and know that you're in that state while you're in that state. That state of consciousness, because it is not non-consciousness, it is consciousness, where there's everything is shut down, all of the jhavana have gone into a state of pure potential. That's called the bhavanga in Pali, bhavanga. So we have jhavana, all the activities, the kinetic energy. Bhavanga is a state of consciousness where all the jhavana has gone dormant. Bhavanga. It's translated, I think, not very well as life continuum. So when you're reading in English, you may encounter that term. A more literal and I think more illuminating translation um, is ground of becoming. Ground of becoming. Because bhava means to become, and anga has different meanings, one of, them which, one of which is basis or ground. So a ground of becoming. That's straight Theravada. That's no interpretation there. That's just what the Theravada uh, tradition states based upon centuries and centuries and centuries of yogis achieving this state. And then if you want to go on and achieve the actual state of the first jhana, then you can't rest in that bhavanga, but you don't get to the first jhana without accessing the access. You don't get to the actual state of the first jhana without resting in the bhavanga. That's Theravada tradition, and it's uniform. It's really anybody who knows it well knows that's the case. So that's Theravada. They're off down there in the sweltering jungles of Southeast Asia and in Sri Lanka and so forth. Now let's go up 14,000 feet to where a lot of the Tibetan yogis live. They've been doing this, various practices, a wide variety of shamatha practices, including settling the mind, very big in the Kagyu Nyingma, or the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition, very central there, most widely taught. And they do this practice for, let's say, 5,000 hours, 10, 12 hours a day. What happens? You go from the cascading waterfall to finally, 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 you come to the mountain, all of the activities of the mind are now just still. The mind is still like a mountain. Your senses are completely withdrawn into mental awareness. And lo but they don't use the word vavanga. They don't use that. And so the terminology is different. The method was different. Mindfulness of breathing and settling the mind are very different practices. So it's important not to mix them up, mesh them. So for these hardcore Tibetan yogis, and I've known quite a few of them, quite awesome, really. I've hardly, I'm not sure I've ever met a scientist 
with as much dedication to the science as I've known yogis dedicated to their yogic practice. Do you know any scientist that starts at 5 o'clock in the morning and ends at 1 on a regular basis? <laughs> I haven't heard of one. So it's pretty intense. So that's what they report. That there's no philosophy here, there's no religion here. Just what happens if you run this experiment for, let's say, 5,000 hours ballpark. So not 500, not 50,000. Ballpark 5,000. Well, your senses completely withdraw into mental awareness. All of the activities of the mind naturally subside. And you come into the state of consciousness that they call, in Sanskrit, and I'm speaking now directly out of the Dzogchen tradition. Dzogchen tradition. And this is not controversial. This is like talking about, I don't know, rolling balls down, down a ramp in elementary Newtonian physics. Like, nobody's arguing about this. Like, hey, we ran that experiment. You want to talk about something more interesting? You know, this is really, really basic. So it's not controversial at all, just really core. And maybe called by different terms, but that's it. One of the terms is alaya vijnana, a term that's been appropriated, why? perhaps even invented by the Chittamatra system, the mind-only system. I'm not going to go there. That's a, lot of, that's a philosophical forest. And I don't want to go there. I want to just keep right to the experience. And the Dzogchenbas, the, the writers, the contemplatives that I've read, just keep right to the experience. They're much more like reporters than they are historians, you know, historians. They're just saying, this happened, this happened, this happened. And so when, the, when you do this practice a lot, then everything dissolves into the mind, the mind dissolves into your chitta, your ordinary dualistic mind, thinking, acting, and all of that. All of this dissolves. And your mind, your chitta, your psyche, which is a woman's mind, a man's mind, Anglo, Hispanic, Chinese, and what have you, old mind, young mind, all the ways that the mind is configured uniquely, by our personal history, genetics, brain chemistry, environment, language, and all of that. All that dissolves. So the metaphor I like is that I've heard, and who can possibly test this, that every snowflake is absolutely unique. I mean, it would be incredible if it's true, with the trillions of snowflakes that have fallen, and each one is totally unique. Maybe it's true. They say it is. Maybe it is. Let's imagine it is. In which case, everybody's mind right now, I would say with a lot of confidence, more confidence than they have about snowflakes, everybody's mind is completely unique. Nobody's, nobody else besides David is sitting right there, just for starters. So you've got a unique perspective. And so it, that's it. Son, done deal. I rest my case. Nobody's sitting where you are right now, which means nobody has your perspective right now, and no one was where you were five minutes ago, and the list goes on. So really, no, how, matter, how many galaxies or sentient beings there may be, nobody else is here right now where you are. So a uniquely configured mind. And it keeps on getting configured, configured from moment to moment. Right? Like a snowflake. Now let's imagine that you take that snowflake of your mind, and it's actually a very close metaphor that comes right out of the Dzogchen tradition. Imagine you melt the snowflake of your mind. And then you, then you examine it right down to the molecular level. And you're seeing H2O. H2O. Now, of course the H2O makes up this snowflake, so let's not push the me metaphor too hard. But in that liquid water now, it's just going right down to the molecular level, H2O. Well, physicists will tell you H2O on, on, on this planet, in, that's, you know, in that planet, in that galaxy, in that galactic cluster. You've seen one, you've seen them all. They're located differently, but besides that, they are really exactly the same. That's what's said about the substrate consciousness, and that's how I translate the alaya vijnana, substrate consciousness. Gunji alaya means a basis, a substrate, a foundation for everything. Everything what? All the mental events that arise. 
all the kinetic energy that arises, all the subject subjective states of consciousness, of sensory perception, thought, memory, hope, fear, emotions, desires, and all of that, all of these mental emergences, the javana, the activities of the mind, all of these observe from, arise from, this alaya vijnana, wherein alaya means a foundation, a basis for all, and vijnana is a consciousness. It's a dimension of consciousness that underlies all of our ordinary javana states, the active states, but every time we fall asleep, they dissolve back into it. So about reporting, I said there were some interesting parallels. Well, the description of the alaya vijnana in the Dzogchen tradition and the description of the bhavana in the Theravada tradition, virtually identical. I, I wake up in that one, and I see that one, I say, oh, tell me more. Well, the Theravada tradition said, well, it's not only that, we not only describe that, but um, you don't have to achieve shamatha, or access to the first jhana, to experience this bhavanga. Happens every time you fall into, into deep dreamless sleep. It happens should you become comatose, have head injury, and just go you know, get knocked out for a while, faint. Nowadays, we can say that's where you wind up when you get a general anesthetic. And, this is Theravada, and when you die, dying, 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 dead. When you get to dead, you're no longer dying, it's a fait accompli, done deal, hey, you're dead. That dead point is where your psyche slips into the bhavanga. All that's left when you're dead is bhavanga. Now, in the Buddhist view, of course, dead is not all, dead is not all that it cracks, it's cracked up to be. because it's very transient. That's only a short time. But the dead point is when your mind now is irreversibly dissolved back into Bhavanga. That particular mind that arose independent upon your body, now Buddhists would go along with that, and now thanks to the fantastic discoveries of modern science, primarily neuroscience, we know it's not just body as in equally elbow and brain and nose, but the brain is playing a very prominent role. The brain is no longer able to support that psyche. Your brain's gone dead. And it's not going to get, it's not going to be, how do you be, reborn. It's not going to be revitalized and be able, it's irreversibly dead. Entropy has crept in. The dead point is the bhavanga. Let's jump up 14,000 feet again. What do you guys say in your laboratories, in your caves? When you slip into what you call the alaya vijnana, the substrate consciousness, tell us more. Here's what they say. And this is where the H2O comes in. That is, we all know our minds are uniquely configured. I mean, that's not very mysterious. But what happens when you dissolve your mind into this substrate consciousness, the alaya vijnana? You're no longer human. From that perspective, with, as you're resting luminously, clearly, vibrantly, resting in that state of consciousness, there's nothing from within, within that that is man or woman. There's nothing in there that's human. There's nothing in there that is Hispanic or anything else. It's an unconfigured state of consciousness. Does that unconfigured mean it has no qualities at all? No, it has qualities that you'll report on when you come out because you are luminously aware, I mean vividly, fantastically awake. All that vividness of attention that you're cultivating along the trajectory of shamatha, that's there at the end. You don't blank out. You're bringing this thousand watt bulb right into the depths of the tunnel, one mile down. And when you hit the, the, the space of the substrate, it's being illuminated by this incandescent light of the substrate consciousness. And the substrate is the space, and the consciousness of it is the substrate consciousness.
The alaya is the space. Alaya vijnana is the awareness that illuminates that space. Okay? It has three qualities. H2O. And that is, first of all, and this is really a cool discovery, is blissful. And you're not aware of anything other than that space. And it's not a really happy, you know, happy smile space. It's just space. So you're not getting any stimulation there. Is anything taking place in the brain? Of course, how could it not? The brain never turns into pudding until you're dead. It's a lot, a lot like tapioca, I understand, but it's very vibrant tapioca. So it's, it's blissful. Now it's blissful in a way that is really anomalous compared to all of the sensory blisses, all of the hedonic blisses, blisses we get. This afternoon, one set of people are going to be really blissful and another set of people won't be blissful at all. Right? But it will pass as they put on their Super Bowl rings. I can imagine when it first goes on, it's kind of like, this is the best day of my life. Look at this little piece of metal on my finger. (laughs) A year later, it won't be quite the same. And whether it's winning the Super Bowl, whether it's having the best sex in your life, the most fantastic meal of your life, the most brilliant sunset, tapers off. Just tapers off. That's it. And if you just continue it, imagine after the football game, they put a, guy, put a, ringer, a ring on the guy's finger, and they take it off and they put it on again. And they just sit there for an hour and just keep on putting the ring on. <laughs> after a while, he's going to say, would you stop already? I'm, I'm hungry. The first time was really nice. The second, well, okay, but, you know, this is getting annoying. And I don't care whether it's made out of platinum, diamonds, you know, give me, a, I'm, I, want, I want to see my wife, I want to have a good meal, and I want to so, cool it with a ring already. <laughs> and that's pretty much for everything. Sunsets, food, you name it. What doesn't get stale pretty quickly when you just keep on repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, right? This isn't so. This is an exception, because it's not hedonic. It's not hedonic. And that is you, you achieve shamatha and you slip into the substrate consciousness, it's blissful every time. And it doesn't get less blissful after an hour, two, three, four hours. You can imagine this can be very addictive. One beautiful, so let's finish the H2O aspect of it. It's blissful, but it's continually, reliably blissful. Number two, it's luminous, wide, wide awake. It's not luminous in the sense of, wow, isn't that bright? I've got to squint my mental eyes, but rather luminous and being just extraordinarily awake, vividness off the charts. So it's a really, it's a wonderful anomaly, and that is you have extreme vividness of awareness of virtually nothing. Right? You're illuminating empty space, but there are no particles in the space to beam back, you know, bright images and so forth. So you're like, ooh, nothing happening, huh? And you're not even saying nothing happening. And that's because of the third quality. It's blissful, it's luminous, and it's non-conceptual. It's not to say it's absolutely non-conceptual. Occasionally, a little thought can arise. And whenever I talk about this, the image of the aquarium that I had as a kid comes to mind. You turn off all the lights in the room, and just the aquarium light, and you watch it and occasionally see a bubble come out of this, the sand at the bottom, and it'll go. No tsunami. 
The fish don't go, you know, fleeing to the to the to the walls of the of the aquarium. It just that's it, nothing more. It came, but no repercussions, no nothing more. It just that was it. That's all there is to it. A thought will come up like that, and you'll be vividly aware of it. That's it. No chain link, no reverberations. But by and large, it's just quiet. It's blissful, it's luminous, and it's non-conceptual. And I think largely because it is non-conceptual, then there is no configuration of that experience as being male, female, human, canine, bovine, and so forth and so on. So one metaphor I like a lot, we're going to have to take a break, I said we would have one, and that is, this is like stem consciousness. As we have a stem cell that you put into the brain, it becomes a neuron, put into bone marrow, it becomes bone marrow cell and so forth, but they really, they can become anything, as my understanding, depending on context, environment, correct, yeah? So, and then after they've con gotten configured, well, that's really a neuron, and it will die as a neuron. It's not going to go back and become a stem cell again, in my understanding. Well, this is a stem consciousness. And that is when this consciousness is aroused, and it is aroused, for example, when you're in stage four dreamless sleep, and then it's aroused, it's catalyzed, and it gets configured as a dream. And what happens? I hope there are a few Star Trek fans here, because it's so much like the holodeck. And that is the space, the alaya, the space of the mind, the substrate, which is this luminous, vacuous, borderless space. That's the holodeck. That is the domain in which all appearances of the dream state arise. The appearances of the colors, sounds, and so forth, everything that appears to you in the environment. You look at your body, all the appearances of your body in the dream, all arising out of the substrate, and your awareness and your reactions to all that's taking place within the dream your perceptions of them, your thoughts about them, your recognition, your hopes and fears, emotions, all of that, Javana has kicked in. The engine has been turned on, and this, out of the substrate consciousness arises all the Javana, which are subjective experiences and responses to the appearances that are arising to awareness. So all of these mental states, the subjective mental states, emerge out of the substrate consciousness, and all the appearances arise out of substrate then the dream is over, right? And all the appearances, as the dream fades out, all the appearances, like as if you've gradually turned down the, the voltage on the holodeck, all the appearances, and bear in mind, these are very multifaceted, tactile sensations, olfactory, gustatory, sense of all kinds in a dream, right? can have all modalities. All of them fade out. All the appearances that are arising to your mind dissolve back into the substrate. And all the perceptions of them, all the activities of the subjective mind that perceived and engaged with them and made sense of them, they all dissolve back into the substrate consciousness. And you're back into neutral again. Let 90 minutes go by, you'll probably be into your next dream cycle. Okay. So, that's settling the mind in its natural state. And lo and behold, these Tibetan yogis say that we have multiple times when you access the substrate consciousness. So the primary way, the, the, the best way to access it, you can really get the full experience, is by shamatha. Because that's where you're relaxing so much, as, it's as if your whole body mind is falling asleep. But you're doing it with such stability that you're maintaining continuity of awareness, but you're enhancing the vividness, so when you finally go into this state, you're luminously aware. So you really get to totally savor it. 
And moreover, you can access it whenever you like. That's the cool thing about shamatha. Once you've achieved it, then you can access this state really on call in your in. Stay four hours minimum, maybe much longer. And every time you go in, it's blissful, it's luminous, and non-conceptual. Access to the first jhana. Virtually identical account in the Theravada and in the Tibetan, and they both make the same similar claims about the duration. Four hours, easy. Achieve the actual state of the first jhana. You're talking 24 hours. Absolute flow. No movement. So there's been a lot of inflation of these terms recently. But if we go back to the classics and the great yogis who really know what they're talking about, these are not trivial states of consciousness. Go back to these Tibetan yogis. When do we ever, or are there any other occasions in which we experience the substrate consciousness, the substrate? They said, oh yeah, when you fall deep asleep, uh, when you become comatose or faint, and oh yeah, when you die. Now I find that interesting, because they were not cribbing notes back and forth. We don't know anything over here. What are you guys coming up with? You know? <laughs> no. They're all claiming to know what they're talking about, and they're giving si similar or identical reports, but the laboratories are separated in more ways than we can count. So, and then, of course, I'm not just interested in this as a historian. I'm really not that interested in history. I want to know what the nature of consciousness is. And these people have been looking at it with rigor that really commands my respect and coming up with similar, similar reports, independent labs, and to a large extent, very different methodologies and conceptual frameworks. So there it is. That's settling the mind in its natural state, is deconfiguring your mind back into a, a more primitive state, primal state. And it would be very easy to now load metaphysics on it and say, this must be the Buddha nature, Nirvana, Dhammadhatu, Dhammakaya, Rikpa, blah, 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 and it's not. And in the Theravada tradition, they, there's this, this warning label that goes along for centuries. When you slip into the Bhavanga, and let, if you don't know better and have a qualified teacher, you're going to think you've achieved Nibbana. And you haven't. Get over it. You're still in samsara. This is a basketball game. You've just had timeout. This is a timeout on samsara. It doesn't feel like samsara, but neither does a basketball game when the coach is talking to the players. Right? But this won't last. And when the, game's, when the timeout is over, you're going to be right back where you were before. And in the same way, and I find this also interesting from independent laboratories, in the Tibetan tradition, and I'm referring especially to the Kagyu Nyingma, but no, actually it's all schools. Tsongkhaba, that whole Galupa tradition, which I've been trained for 20 years, they say the same thing. They all say the same thing. There are a lot of things that Tibetan Buddhists and Theravadans will debate about. This isn't one of them, because it's not philosophy. And here's, this, here's what they say in the Tibetan tradition, all schools. When you slip into this alaivichnana, or the galupas call it, the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, when you slip into that by way of achieving shamatha, you'll very easily think this is Buddha nature, pristine awareness, rikpa, ultimate nirvana, emptiness. Hey, it's empty, it's luminous. What more do you want? This must be shunyata, ultimate reality. Wrong, 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 all the way wrong across the board, wrong. Not. It is blissful, it's luminous, and it's non-conceptual. But it's not ultimate. It is just the relative ground state of the ordinary mind. But one of the great contemplative scholars of, of the Galupa tradition, Penchen Losan Shikigansen, the tutor of the fifth Dalai Lama, said, when you access this, and it's just shamatha, we're not even talking about Vipassana yet. 
This is just flat out the technology of shamatha. When you access this, you will have you will have discovered for yourself the relative nature of consciousness. So when he says relative, he said we're not talking about Buddha mind here or nirvana, anything ultimate, but just what's the nature of consciousness in its ground state when it's been unconfigured and you're looking at the brass tacks, its essential qualities, when it's not configured as a dog consciousness, human, male, female, and so forth. You come to the essential nature of consciousness by its nature, when it's not veiled with these adventitious defilements, it's blissful, it's luminous, and it's non-conceptual. So. So in Phuket, Thailand, we'll start these eight-week retreats this in a couple of months. And then by the end of this year, we'll start developing a true contemplative laboratory where people go in not for eight weeks of basic training, which is really good and really important, but go in for two years, five years, 10, 15, 20 years. In a very conducive environment, healthy, inexpensive, a bit hot, but we have air conditioning. <laughs> and then put these to the test of experience. Having a Tibetan Buddhist teaching in Thailand. I like that. <laughs> because you see, it's really not sectarian at all. It is an inquiry into the very nature of mind and consciousness in a good old-fashioned way, which has been largely forgotten by psychologists and neuroscientists alike. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you really want to understand something, observe it directly. Mm -hmm. Don't just interview people about their experiences, and don't just look at the brain correlates, and don't just look at their behavior. If you want to understand something, then follow the track of all of the other natural sciences. Observe it closely, meticulously, and for a very long time. And then you might actually understand the nature of the phenomenon that you're interested in. I think this is more scientific than simply studying things that are related to consciousness. And it's not in competition. It's not saying, okay, are you on our side or their side? Are you going to study behavior and brain, or are you going to study the mind directly? No. Why on earth should we have to make that choice? Bring it all together. And that would be unprecedented. To bring this fantastic technology and the intelligence, the insights of neuroscience, with the wonderful hundred years or so of modern psychology, clinical and cognitive, and bring these objective measures together with extremely rigorous first-person measures and professional training like neuroscientists and psychologists get. And we have Viva la Revolution. Let's take a break. I said there'd be a break. A uh, little bit. Let's come back at 11.40, and we'll have one more session. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.